All right. Well, welcome again. It's good to see your faces here. Um, as Steve mentioned, and as he first uh, spoke, we are in this summer season going through the book of Philippians. So if you would turn there, we're going to uh, start in Philippians chapter 1, just after where Steve left off on his message. So this got divided up by uh, four or five speakers, so there's big chunks here to cover. So I'm not sure how far we're going to get, but let's read... Um, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll read to verse 30. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. But I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Heavenly Father. As we come to this time of examining and uh, listening to your word, we pray, as has been already prayed, that you would protect me from error. We pray that your spirit would work through your very words to speak to your body, the bride, your bride. And we pray that you would do this through uh, the gifts you have blessed the body with. We pray all these things would be done for you and unto you and because of you. We pray that we would lay aside our sinful flesh, our selfish desires, and that this would be about you, about what you have said, uh, about yourself and about us. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. If I really boogie, I'm hoping I can make it to verse 26, but we'll see how this goes. I usually have a hard time getting through three verses, so. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's saying, my desire is that you would learn or discover. And he calls them brothers, right? He's speaking to the church in Philippi, which Steve already pointed out in the last one, the believers in, in Philippi. Um, <clears throat> like Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? Those in Christ are the brothers, and that's who... Paul is speaking to here, the brothers, the other believers in Philippi. Now, what he wants them to know is that his circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. Uh, ESV, I think, says, what has happened to me? Um, I think this is a little euphemistic. Do you guys know what a euphemism is? Like uh, an easy way to say something difficult, right? Like the CIA might say, we, we dispatched that guy with extreme prejudice instead of saying we murdered somebody, right? And I think Paul's maybe being a little euphemistic here. The, my circumstances, the things that have happened, what he isn't saying is what we can fill in from the book of Acts. He's been arrested. He's been chained to a guard for two years. And he didn't do anything wrong. The things that have happened to me, that, that's a pretty euphemistic way to say that, right? I'd probably be saying, poor me chained up I'm can't get any rest this guy's there and he snores and you know but Paul says none of that he says my circumstances have turned out so have turned out this has the implication that these events are directed they're being directed um, so Paul recognizes even here his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. ESV says to advance the gospel. And uh, that's a good word, actually, if you look at the Greek, to advance. It's a, it was a term that the army used to use when they'd send their engineers out ahead of the main army. They'd go in advance, and they'd cut down hills, and they'd build bridges so that the army could come through. The way was prepared. And that's, that's the term Paul's using here. The gospel is being advanced the greater progress of the gospel. So, his circumstances are being directed to advance the gospel, is the point he's making here. Uh, it has the idea of moving ahead, but, but of moving ahead against obstacles. Not easily, but against obstacles. And so this brings a question to my mind that in our lives... What do you do when circumstances don't go the way you thought they would? When there is an obstacle ahead. We know from Romans 1.15 that Paul planned to come and preach to the church in Rome. Let's go there, Romans Uh, let's read 14 as well. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. In this way, for my part, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Paul's intention was to go to Rome and to preach the gospel. The circumstances did not, there was an obstacle. He got arrested. Paul could have sat and sulked, right? Often I find in my life, something doesn't go the way I planned. Hey, I'm going to do this thing for God. And then something happens and I can't do it the way I thought. And so often I sit there and I say, well, I can't do it. I'm just going to have to sit here, right? There's no progress. There's an obstacle in the way. Paul turned this time. He wrote, I think, three or four books. He, um, let's go to Acts 28. We can see how he spent his time. He didn't say, oh, I can't do anything. I'm chained to this guard. I'm stuck in a house. Acts 28 tells us what he did. Uh, So Acts 28, uh, starting in verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered. So, well, he's got... It sounds like he's staying in a vacation house, but that isn't the thing at all, right? He's, he's literally chained to this guard 24 hours a day, and he's confined to this house. They, they did allow him to rent a house to stay in, but it was not a vacation stay. He's, he's imprisoned in this house for two years, and he welcomed everyone who'd come to him, and he preached the kingdom of God, and he taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. So... He um, had a different plan to get to Rome. But when God directed it in a different way, Paul used that um, still for the furtherance of the gospel, to advance the gospel. So he starts his verse, Now I want you to know, brothers, and I'm, I ask, like, why does Paul want the church in Philippi to know this? that his circumstances advance the gospel. Let's go to um, Acts 16. Steve read that, but this kind of struck me as I was studying for this. So Acts chapter 16. So, um, where should we start here? We... Steve mentioned the, the conversion of Lydia and the beginning of the church. Uh, and then the, the servant girl who had a spirit cast out of her. And because of the loss of their prophet, her owners had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. Um, so let's pick this up in verse 25. Thank you. Uh, starting in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise. Well, let's back up because we missed some context here. Verse 22, the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off them, proceeded to order them beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. So after being beaten severely, they're sitting in prison, praying and singing hymns. When I reach an obstacle, I don't often respond like this, I'll tell you. 
But um, they were praising, praying, singing, singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfashioned. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we all are here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and with trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why am I bringing this up? He wants them to know that he's imprisoned, I think, because when they saw the foundation of the Philippian church, they saw God releasing him from prison. And I know in my heart, when I see something not going the way I think it should, I'm saying, where's God in this? I think it would be very easy for the Philippians to say, hey, has God abandoned Paul? When he was here, earthquake, shake the doors open, shake the chains off, and out he goes. Now he's in Rome, and he's locked up. There doesn't seem to be a release. And I think Paul wants the Philippians to know that, hey, even in this, God's got a plan. Yeah, God did open the prison walls. He opened the doors, shook the chains off, and we we could go free. But here, he has a different plan. And I want you to know that he's using that different plan to advance the gospel. So often our experience can lead us to expectation and entitlement, right? God did this for me before, therefore he's going to do it again. God owes us nothing. God didn't owe Paul a release from prison. And in this instant, he isn't giving it. Um, So often, I know in my own heart anyway, I'm wondering, where is God in this? He's not working the way I thought he would. And I I think that's why Paul wants the brothers to know that the things that have happened to him are for the progress of the gospel. Um, yeah. And he mentions again in verse 27 and 29, he, he uses all these terms of contention. Standing firm, contending, opponents, suffering, right? So I think Paul is getting the point to the Philippians that, yeah, God can save you from awful circumstances at times, and yet sometimes he uses those circumstances of contention trials and hardships um, for his purposes. Okay, so back to our text, verse 13. So that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul's crime was preaching Christ. He's been imprisoned because he preaches Christ without apology. He became well known. That word well known means it shines forth. Literally, it's shining forth. So, Paul's reason, the reason for Paul's imprisonment, preaching Christ, is becoming known to everyone around him. Again, he's not sitting in his house sulking. He's preaching to everyone who'll come, and he's got this captive audience who's chained to him. Four hours a day, or no, six hours a day, and then they'd switch guards, right? He gets to, even if there's nobody coming to visit, he's got a guard there to talk to. So it had become, it had become well-known or apparent throughout the whole Praetorian Guard that Paul was a political prisoner, not a real lawbreaker. He was there as a consequence of his allegiance to Christ. If Paul's first plan to come to Rome and preach the gospel 
had gone ahead the way he said, perhaps these guards would never have heard the gospel. We don't know, but we know God has a plan. And that plan involved Paul um, doing this. Paul's chains also gave him access to the officials of Rome. The reason Paul was in Rome is they wanted to find out about Christianity, right? They're going to try him. He went to Festus and spoke to him, and then he goes to Caesar. And now the people in Rome, the officials, are going to look at Paul's case. So these men now have to study the principles of Christianity versus Judaism because Paul is there and in chains. They would have never had to study Christianity if Paul was not there. They're there to determine, hey, is this, is this a threat to the Roman Empire? Is this just another type of Judaism? Is it the same thing? Is it different? All of these men are now having to study Christianity because of Paul's chains. Um, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So another way that Paul's chains are advancing the gospel is by giving boldness to the brothers. And this seems kind of weird, right? Hey, they're arresting Christians, and now the Christians are getting more bold. But um, I don't know about for you guys, but during the pandemic when we were forbidden to meet or to sing or to have communion together, and I see guys going to jail because they're doing that, that gave me boldness. I don't know about you, but I went, hey, they're willing to stand for what they believe, am I? And I think in a way, this happened with Paul too, right? He's willing to go and do this for, for Christ, am I? Also, how many of us don't preach Christ because we think someone else will do it better? Oh, I'll just let Howard handle that, right? I'll step aside. Hey, Dwight's pretty good at talking to people. I'm just going to let him handle this, right? They have Paul, the apostle, speaking, and now Paul's locked up. I think this is another reason that perhaps the brothers had boldness is because, hey, Paul's locked up. Who's going to step up, right? So, because of my... So, trusting in the Lord. This word trusting is fully persuaded. Paul was fully persuaded. And it's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a lasting persuasion. He knows that because of his imprisonment, these guys are having more courage. So he's seeing the outcome of God's using these chains. Um, and this word courage is the ability to confront fear, pain, danger, and uncertainty or intimidation. Sharing the gospel requires courage. It's never going to be easy. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, knows it takes courage. Literally, it means to dare. Do you dare? Right? To dare. Man, time's running away on me. Verse 15 to 17. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. Something to note here, they're preaching Christ. Paul is not saying, hey, I'm okay with error, right? We know 
in Galatians. I'm not going to make you turn there, but Galatians 1, 6, 8, and 9. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul's not saying, hey, these guys are preaching error and I'm okay with it. It's not the content that was wrong. It was the motivation that was wrong. They're preaching Christ from envy and strife, but they're still preaching Christ. So don't think here that Paul's saying, hey, it's okay to tolerate error. That's not what he's saying at all. But he is saying, hey, and in fact, there's a warning in there. When we preach Christ, why are we doing it? What is our motivation? What's our motivation in preaching Christ? Is your proclamation ever totally pure? I know everything I do is contaminated with sin. If the content is correct, the motives will be judged by the master, not by another servant. They are preaching continually, present tense. They're preaching, they're preaching. And they're preaching the Christ, the Messiah. So the content is right, and they're doing it continually. Some are doing it from envy and strife. Um, Our English word envy comes from an interesting Latin word, invidio. Video means to look, and in means against. So envy means to look against somebody in English. And that's a pretty good understanding and and a pretty good translation of the original word here, that people, these other guys who are preaching Christ, were not doing it out of pure motives. They were doing it out of envy, a grudging discontent because of the achievements of somebody else. Can you relate to that? Do you ever have a grudging discontent because of the achievements of somebody else? We're called not to. Right? We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I think mourning's a lot easier because rejoicing for somebody truly can be really difficult if we're honest. Envy and strife. Strife is engaging in rivalries. It has a, um, a spirit of antagonism and competitiveness. That's what strife's talking about. It's, it's fighting to have its own way, no matter what the cost is to myself or to others. That's this word, strife. It's this deep desire to prevail over other people and to gain prestige or prominence or recognition. And some of these men were preaching Christ out of those motives. I think it behooves us to make sure our contention is over accuracy and purity, not over envy and strife, right? Too often it's easy to convince ourselves, I don't like that church because they're not doctrinally pure. But I think we need to examine ourselves. Do we have envy and strife? Or is it the purity of the gospel that's at, at heart here? So if they're preaching Christ... He's going to rejoice, no matter their motives. Um, J. Vernon McGee, I was just reading a, a sermon by him on this, and he just had an interesting... He said, the problem is that some men who have one gift are envious of man, a man with a different gift. You'll remember that Paul told the Corinthians that the gifts are to be exercised in love. Every gift is to be exercised in love. My friend, 
If you will exercise your gift in love, you will not envy someone else. Love envieth not. Vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Envy says, I don't think much of you. Pride says, what do you think of me? How are we using our gifts in the body? Are we envious of one another? Verses 16 and 17. The latter do it out of selfish ambition. So we have a contrast in these verses. We have love and we have selfish ambition. And they're being contrasted. It's a direct contrast. So the direct opposite of selfish ambition is love, is what he's saying. It's selflessness versus selfishness. And some, he said, so it's selfish ambition rather than pure motives. And the pure motives are love. Um, pure motives are free from in defilement or impurities. So to do something with not pure motives means you do it with selfish reasons or with impurity. And so this, I think, calls all of us to examine our motives in ministry. Are you a believer? Then you're in ministry. Why do you do what you do in ministry? Am I constantly comparing myself to others in ministry? Do I rejoice when my friends succeed? Or do I grow jealous and competitive? Do I resent it when others in ministry are praised? Does it disturb me when others are praised, promoted, and more recognized than I am? What is my response to those who try to tear me down in order to build themselves up? These are some questions I uh, took from a commentary I was reading. And I found them very challenging. But um, why do you do your ministry? Are you doing it out of pure motives? And I don't care if you're stacking chairs or standing here. You have ministry. And if you're singing and if you're bringing meals for the body, you have a ministry. Why do you do what you do in ministry? Are you comparing yourself with others in ministry? Are you bringing food to impress others or to serve the body? Are you stacking chairs over there to get everyone hurried up and out of here? Or are you doing it to serve the body? Are you sweeping the floor with the right motives? Are you preaching the word from the pulpit because it's God's word? Or do you want to hear praise from people? Are our prayer requests out loud for the benefit of the body or so people will think we're spiritual? Why do you sing? Why don't you sing? Why do you play an instrument? Why do you talk to the people you talk to? Why do you avoid those you don't talk to? I think these all need to be asked of ourselves. Are we doing this out of pure motives? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul starts this with 
what then? It's a question. He's kind of saying, hey, I'm chained up and you guys are trying to rub it in. How does this affect me? And he says, you know what? As long as my Savior is being proclaimed, my mission is being accomplished. And that's how it affects me, he says. It brings me joy. I'm going to rejoice in this. Even though you guys mean it for ill to me, I'm going to rejoice in it because you're proclaiming Christ. And we get this ongoing theme of joy and rejoicing in Philippians. You'll see it over and over, and I hope the other guys will bring it out, but it's, it's here, and, and this is one of the first places we see it. Um, I think it's there 12 or 14 times, the different versions. But um, So Paul's difficult, painful, unpleasant, and life-threatening circumstances are causing joy in him, not grumbling. And he says, I rejoice. And this is in the active voice in Greek, which means he's choosing to do that. It's a choice of his will. I'm choosing to rejoice in this. Whatever comes. Oh, and he says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. So he says, whatever comes, I'm going to rejoice in that too. Again, the will, right? I am going to rejoice in that. This word joy or rejoice speaks of a physical change in your countenance. You can see it. And it's often used in Scripture to describe, you know, a lamb or a calf when you let them out of the stall and they're skipping through the grass. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. It's a pretty rustic and rural uh, illustration. But it, it's joy if you've ever seen it. And uh, that's the word. That's how they use it. And it, it changes your countenance. It changes your actions. That's the kind of joy Paul is choosing to choose choosing to have. It's not this sort of, hey, I'm going to suffer through this and it'll get better. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Just grind on through. But it's joy in the circumstances that God has placed in his life there. And that was a whole sermon I could have spoken. But anyway, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The reason for the rejoicing that Paul can have in this is what it's going to lead to. It's going to lead to salvation, to deliverance. Now we see from verse 20 that Paul isn't saying, hey, I'm definitely getting out of here, right? Verse 20, he says, whether by life or by death, right? But he's rejoicing that because through your prayers and through the Holy Spirit, it's going to work to his salvation, his saving, his deliverance. And we'll look at that a little bit more when we get there. But this is a difficult piece here, a passage. And it, it seems to have ambiguity as Paul wrote it. And MacArthur suggests that perhaps Paul was ambiguous in his mind. He, did, he wasn't sure what was going to happen. And perhaps that's why it's written in a way that it could be his physical deliverance or it could be his spiritual deliverance as, as he goes on to death. So, um, but the point is, Paul's saying, you know what, whatever my state, it's temporary, and either, well, either, either outcome, death or life, is going to serve God. It's going to advance the gospel, right? And so he was okay with it. And I don't know if your Bibles have it, but um, Verse 19, this will turn out for my salvation is in all caps in mind. That's because it's a quotation. It's a quotation from the book of Job. Uh, he's quoting Job three, 
13.16. And the context in Job is, you know, he's kind of being on trial by his friends almost. Uh, and they're saying, hey, God wouldn't do this if you weren't sinning in some way. And, uh, and Job says, hey, this will turn out for my salvation. Um, and Paul is saying that he's going to be vindicated too in the only court that matters, right? The court of the high king. So, Paul is saying here that as the Philippians pray for him and as the Spirit enables him, he's going to be delivered from denying Christ and disgracing the gospel at his trial before Caesar. He will be vindicated in the ultimate court, right? No matter what happens in front of Caesar, no matter what happens to what people think of him, he's going to be vindicated before God because he's trusting in God. Um, Through... your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through is the means by which this deliverance is going to happen. And that, I think, brings another question up. Through your prayers. Are you praying for your brothers and sisters? Are you praying that they would be faithful and that they would be vindicated in the court that matters? Are you interceding regularly for your brothers and sisters in the body? Do you know the needs of your brothers and sisters in the body? If you are praying for them, are you praying out of love for them, out of pure motives? Or are you praying out of duty and obligation? Are we praying in the spirit like we're called to in Ephesians 6.18? Are we praying without ceasing like he says in Thessalonians? Bruce Hurt put it this way, speaking on this. He said, if prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie, the spirit is the battery power, the enabler of the transmission of the radio signal, the provision of the Holy Spirit. And he supplies and lavishes it abundantly upon us. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame. According to, so in agreement with, as I expect or hope would be another way to say that. According to, so as I hope, my earnest expectation. Um, there's another place this word is used. Um, Romans 8. Let's go there. I think it's only used twice in the New Testament, if I remember correctly. And so the other place we see this word, this earnest expectation, is in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 18 and 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing, that's our word, this earnest expectation, this anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So this word literally means to kind of watch with your head uplifted or outstretched. You know, you can picture the guy kind of craning his head looking around. That's that's the picture in the Greek word of, of looking with your head outstretched. That's the kind of 
expectation, the kind of longing that Paul, um, that, that he expected. According to my earnest expectation and hope. So this word hope means desiring good and again, expecting it. Um, we see that word used in Psalm 62.5. I mean, not the Greek word, but when they translate it into the Septuagint. Psalm 62.5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. And the New American Standard translates it, my expectation. So this hope and expectation are closely linked, I guess is my point there. Um, the full assurance of hope until the end. And Paul's hope here is grounded in three things, I think. He tells us here. Um, the prayers of the Philippians, the provision of the Holy Spirit, and if we go to verse 20, um, God's past faithfulness is the other reason he hopes. Uh, verse 20, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body. God's past faithfulness is in view here too. I think that's what Paul's hope is grounded in, those three things. Um, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Have you guys heard that slogan, death before dishonor? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. You know, I, I don't want to deny Christ. I'm, I'm going to be tempted as I go before these powerful people who hold my life in their hands to say what they want to hear. And yet, I'd rather die then let down Christ. Again, he wants to be vindicated in the only court that matters, that of God. He didn't want to be intimidated and afraid to speak forth the gospel clearly. And he uses this, um, and he says, that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness. That's a contrast, right? boldness here is being contrasted with shame. So Paul is praying that he would be bold rather than shamed. Again, I think applications for us. Um, Luke 9.26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Boldness is being contrasted with shame. Are we being bold? Boldness means literally all speech, speaking all things. It conveys the idea of freedom to say it all. It's the attitude of openness that stems from the freedom of a lack of fear. So, that in all things, Christ would even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Exalted means to raise in status or to declare great. And this brings up some thoughts, too. If we can magnify or exalt Christ through our body, we can also do the opposite. We can diminish or reduce Christ. We can bring shame to his name through our body. I listened to a sermon once, and he was talking about uh, the Ten Commandments and taking God's name in vain. And he said one of the ways we take God's name in vain is by taking the name of a Christian and living as an unregenerate person. 
That's taking the name of God in vain. And so, if we can exalt God with our body, as Christ is saying, we can also diminish Christ with our body. And this brings up some questions for us again, doesn't it? How do you use your eyes? Are they magnifying Christ? Are you looking at pornography, man? Ladies, are you reading or listening to things that bring the wrong desires to your hearts? How about our tongues? Gossip? Slander? Tail-bearing? Do any of those exalt Christ? We talked about our tongue, but our ears count there too. Do we listen to gossip? Do we listen to slander? Do we listen to tail-bearing? You can never speak it, and yet you can enjoy it. You can still diminish Christ through that. How about your face? You exalt Christ with your face. Does your countenance look like you're magnifying Christ? Do you use your body for purity or sensuality? Do you dress in a way to draw attention? Do you exalt Christ with your body? Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I could have preached five sermons so far, but here's another one that could have been a sermon. But for, to me, this is linking back to the previous thought, the thought of exalting Christ with our body, right? So this is, this is not, as we often have it on a fridge magnet in isolation, for, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That for links it back to exalting, that he might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So these two thoughts are linked. To live Christ is to exalt him in everything we do. At work. When I'm chasing cows at 11 o'clock at night and it's dark and I'm tripping and twisting my ankle, am I exalting Christ? Or am I yelling at my daughter? (laughs) When you hit your hand with a hammer at work, are you exalting Christ in your reaction? When you're dealing with difficult customers and co-workers, are you exalting Christ? Are you living Christ? In the home, when you're reading to your kids, are you exalting Christ? When you're disciplining your kids, are you exalting Christ? Your hobbies, do your hobbies exalt Christ? What you watch, what you listen to, what you live for, does that exalt Christ? You know, you see all these bumper stickers, right? I live to fish. I live for the weekend. Live free or die. Do any of those things exalt Christ? <coughs> Pardon me. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Sometimes I find it helpful to think about the opposite of the statement. So let's do that for a second. If living is not Christ, if it's not for him or about him, then dying is not gain, it's loss, right? 
If living is not Christ, then this is as good as it gets. It's all downhill from here. Your worst day now, if you're not living for Christ, is going to be your best day in eternity. This word gain is also translated profit. It sets... It suggests the idea of setting sail and going on a, a trading trip. Um, to die is gain, to make profit for Christ, right? Paul's saying, hey, I'm ready to go at any time. And he uses it again. Probably the last book he wrote, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's ready to go. Are you ready to depart? How are you living now? Is to live Christ. If you're not ready to depart, get ready. It's appointed to man once to die and in the judgment. If you are ready to depart, how are you spending your time now? Are you working for the progress of the gospel? Are you living Christ day to day? Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will be fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I will choose. That word choose is also translated prefer, and I think that's an easier understanding for us. It's not that Paul could choose whether he's going to live or die, but which one would he prefer? Paul's not suicidal here, but he doesn't know what God's choice is for him. What, where is God going to send him? And he's not sure which one he should choose. Which one should he prefer? Because the one God wants is the one he should prefer. Verse 23. But I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Hard-pressed means literally it's, it's hemmed in on both sides. They'd use this word if there was a, a person walking through a gorge, you know, a tight thing. They're hemmed in on both sides. In English, we might say they're on the horns of a dilemma, right? They've got two two things. Um, Paul here is desiring to be with Christ, to leave, to go and be with his Savior. At the same time, he's desiring to build Christ's church here on earth, right? So he's not suicidal. He's, he's torn between these two. Usually a dilemma is two negative outcomes. Paul's got the opposite problem. He's got two wonderful outcomes. Either he stays here and he does the work of Christ building the church, or he leaves and he's in the arms of his Savior. The desire to depart. I'm having the desire to depart. This is interesting. This word desire here is a passionate desire. Everywhere else, except one place, this is translated lust in the Bible. This is a passionate desire. Paul wanted to leave. The only other place it's used positively, we might as well look there. First uh, Thessalonians 2.17.
1 Thessalonians 2.17. But we, brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while in face, but not in heart, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Great desire, it's translated there. As I said, these are the only two positive uses for this great desire in, in the New Testament. Everywhere else it's translated lusts, and it has a negative outcome. But one commentator put it, this is the lust of a godly man's heart, to, to depart and to be with Christ, the desire to depart. And again, this, this term depart has this idea of, um, well, two things. The one, the one term, the way they used it often was for, for pulling up camp, right? It was a military, if they were going to strike camp, they'd pull up the tent, take down the ropes, pull up the pegs, pack up, and they're gone. They're departing. And the other way it was used is in a, in a maritime sense, with a ship casting off its moorings or pulling up its anchor, right? It's departing. And th- those were the pictures that was used. And, and that's what Paul's saying. I'm ready to go, man. And I really passionately desire to go, actually, he says, and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Just a note here, be with Christ, sort of, puts that idea of soul sleep or purgatory to rest, right? If I'm departed from here, where am I? I'm with Christ, right? This is what Paul's saying. It doesn't... Um, and be with uh, is not just beside or accompanying, but it implies this idea of intimacy. I was thinking about that. We, we sort of use that in secular use today, right? Like... Um, how long has, has Joe been with Priscilla, right? It's more intimate than just, um, just to be near them. It's talking about an intimacy. And, and we sort of use that in a secular sense nowadays. And that was the kind of um, idea Paul was getting with, that, an intimate union with Christ, to be with Christ. For that is very much better. It's an interesting term. Uh, it's literally much more better. It's a, it's a double-strengthened comparative. In, in the Greek, they can, they can say, hey, that's much more better. That's, it's the highest um, superlative that Paul could use. There was no way to emphasize this more. It's much more better to be with Christ. Uh, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul has spoken of his great desire, his lust to be with Christ. He has given it the highest praise he could in that language. Yet here again he is showing that to live is Christ. It's not my will, but yours be done, Father. I long for that, Paul's saying. But you know what? To remain in the flesh is necessary for your sake. If there's work here for me to do, I'll happily stay on. He's ready to go, but he sees the need in the church for him and his gifts brings me to another question for us if you left tomorrow would the body miss you are you using your gifts in the church would it be like we were missing an eye or an arm if you disappeared are you serving others more necessary this idea of more necessary is, um, they used it for, for close relatives, actually. Like, ne- 
it, it's hard to explain, but uh, th there's a secondary sense of this necessary, and it's a person's connected by friendship or nature. So close relatives or close friends were necessary. And uh, it, again, it means intimate. And Paul is saying, hey, I'm ready to stay. It's necessary for me to stay for the brothers. Verse 25. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Convinced of this. He's persuaded. He's got a confident persuasion. Um, the same word is used in verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing. Uh, sure. Some, some translations put sure. Uh, so he's convinced of this. He's convinced of his um, place in their body and helping them to grow. Uh, verse 14, it's translated confident again. Um, convinced of this, I know that. He knows beyond a doubt that the purpose of his remaining is for their progress and joy, right? It says... Uh, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. He's going to remain and continue with you all. Remain means to stay or reside. Continue in a fixed state. He's going to remain there. And, then, and that Greek word is meno. And then continue is parameno or beside. So it's, I'm going to, I'm going to stay with you. And then I'm going to continue with you, beside you. So uh, one translator put it as, I shall remain and I shall remain with. So I'm probably going to stay. And not only am I going to stay, but I'm going to stay with you. Um, he's going to remain at their disposal is the, the point here. And he's going to remain with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This word progress we've already talked about. It's the progress of the gospel, right? The advance of the gospel. Same word as we used in verse 12. But I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And the prog So he was talking about the general progress of um, the gospel originally, and now he's speaking about the progress of the Philippian believers, their more personal progress, the particular progress of the Philippians. And again, your progress and joy in the faith. Again, our theme of joy in the book of Philippians. And the reason he's going to do that, so that, verse 26, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Some translations make this sound like the Philippians are going to boast in Paul. Uh, the LSB kind of flips it around from the New American Standard. Um, ESV does that too. It's, it's closer to the Greek to... In the Greek text, the phrase, in Jesus Christ, precedes the phrase, in me. So, in order that your proud, proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus as he's seen in me. So, Paul's not saying, hey, you should be proud of me. He's saying, you should be proud of what Christ has done through me or for me. So it's Jesus that's at work in Paul, and that, cause, and that causes them to abound in proud confidence. I don't have time to go any further. So let's wrap it up. Are you ready to depart? Is living for you Christ? Will dying be gain? That's the question we all have to wrestle with. Are you using your gifts 
Are you exalting Christ with your body? Are you doing that if you're a believer? And if you're not a believer, are you ready to depart? You need to sort that out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the provision of your Holy Spirit to use it to challenge our hearts, to show us where we lack. We pray this morning that you would cause real change in our hearts through your word, that we would see all the places we're lacking, and that we would in obedience follow you, that we would make those places right. We pray we would exalt you in our body. We pray that we would live Christ. And Lord God, for those who don't know you, we pray that you would bring them to a place where they recognize their need for a Savior, that they're not ready to depart yet, but you can make it so they are. And we pray that you will work in their hearts, bring that truth to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Should we do a closing song? All right, let's do a closing song.